Welcome to Story Geometry, the podcast on the craft and community of writing. I'm Ben Hess, and today we're going to deconstruct existing beliefs, change our lens as we explore sexuality and lit. We have three chapters, and from three very different writers. A memoirist who just released a novel, a former evolutionary biologist who writes young adult fiction, and an award-winning poet who has written a craft book on language. We'll question these inherent assumptions writers and readers make about a character's sexuality, and we'll examine the impact of a writer's own experiences have on the choices in their work. And one of our guests also provides a recommendation for our election year lit segment. And yes, this episode deals with sexual content, and it has a curse word or three, so be warned if young ears are nearby. This episode 13 is in partnership with Literary Workshop Series, Writing by Writers. Be sure to visit writingxwriters.org to sign up for their fall workshop in Tamales Bay, California. They're featuring an incredible lineup of faculty, Richard Bausch, Pam Houston, Ada Limon, Paul Lasicki, and Claire Bay Watkins. And today's Sexuality and Lit sponsor is the indie audiobook company Talking Book at talkingbook.pub. Many thanks to the millions, well, not quite millions, but to all those who have filled out our first ever listener survey. We're still looking for feedback on what's working, what we could improve. So please visit bit.ly slash story geo survey. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash story geo survey. Right now. Go ahead. I'll pause. We'll wait. Here we are. Chapter one. Tina's transformative performance. And it's 1968 in the South, which is resisting the civil rights tidal wave engulfing the country. Two-time Lambda Literary Award winner and Guggenheim Foundation fellow, Fenton Johnson, grew up in rural Kentucky, the youngest of nine children. And he was coming of age in those turbulent late 60s. The first time I saw a live performance, I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Billy Frank Harned uh, and I drove to the notorious Club 68 in Lebanon, Kentucky on the Chitlin Circuit, which was a circuit of clubs in the South that would provide a venue for black mm-hmm. artists during yeah. the days of segregation. And uh, on the stage in this um, sort of cafeteria-style room that ho- would hold maybe 300 and had probably 500 in it was Ike and Tina Turner and the Ikeettes performing in Lebanon, Kentucky in 1968. As you're hearing them perform, did you realize that they were going to be stars, already stars, or? It was a transformative moment for me for the following reason. I, I was already knew that I was a gay boy. I didn't know that such things existed. I didn't know it was a word for what I was. Mm-hmm. But I, I understood that the men around me, most of the men around me, were responding to this woman in a way that I was not responding to her. But I didn't know that anybody could do something like that with their body on mm-hmm. stage in front of you know, what can we say, 500 screaming Anglo rednecks and drunk. And the way that she inhabited her, I don't know what to call it other than black woman's power over these men was an extraordinary thing to witness. I, I, I The way that she inhabited her body and it opened my eyes to the power of desire and what it meant to be a sexual human being. I just had not 
seen <laughs> anything like that. And Tina Turner is a force to be reckoned with. You know, when she, you cannot be in a room with that woman, and and certainly not in a room of that size, and not be touched to the core of your being. Huh. And that I had that experience. It was a religious experience, of course. You know, she was. Uh, Anna Mae Bullock, who sang with the Nutbush, Tennessee Church Choir. That's where she got her start. And she knows what it is to give an audience a religious experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, to answer your question, the novels that saved my life when I was uh, um, young and gay and growing up in rural Kentucky were, uh, by and large, Victorian novels. So Fenton escaped rural Kentucky to study creative writing on a scholarship to Stanford. And then after graduation... He headed back east for a job in Washington, D.C. And I worked as a press secretary on Capitol Hill for a couple of years right after college. And I saved up a little bit of money. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to write for two years. I'm going to try to make my living as a writer. I'm going to try to make it whatever that means as a writer for two years. And if at the end of that two years I have not published something in what I consider to be a genuinely national venue, I will say that I fought the good fight and that I was really destined to go to law school and I would go to law school. Eleven years later, I had my first genuinely national publication. Eleven years. One of the reasons that I left Washington was because at that time, this was 1977, I was whatever I was, 23 24, it was impossible for an openly gay person to have a professional life in Washington, D.C. Really? Oh, completely, totally mm-hmm. impossible. Uh, you One had a choice of being in the closet and staying in Washington, or there were only two cities where you could be an openly gay man. That was New York and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And there was only one profession in which you could sort of kind of be openly gay, which was the arts. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, kind of driven to the arts in that way. If that pressure had not been there, would I in fact have <laughs> gone to law school? Uh, I, in the end, I'd like to think, uh, well, first of all, that pressure was there. It was part of my destiny. So uh, there's no point in, in specu- it's pure speculation to think about what would happen if it was not there. But I also had a certain kind of bullheadedness and a certain kind of uh, fierce independence uh, and a love of language, all of which suited me well, I think, to be a writer and not to be an attorney. Switching back to the men who love birds and thinking about some of the writings around coming out and sexuality that were at Scissors, Paper, Rock with Raphael, does the man who love birds touch on aspects of of sexuality that you maybe wouldn't have written prior or do you examine uh sexuality in in the in the novel through some of these characters like johnny uh, johnny fay is uh, kind of ambi omnisexual i guess you would say and and in that sense he's both omnisexual and he's a jesus figure very self-consciously a jesus figure simultaneously And I like to think that the sort of edgy aspect of this novel is that it insists on the interrelationship between desire and affection or enlightenment Mm -hmm. or love, whatever you want to call that. 
that there's no duality there to use the Buddhist phrase and that in that desire all kinds of desire of which sexual desire is only one manifestation all kinds of desire are um, are essential to the approach to the oneness of being the great spirit the creator God whatever you want to call it and in the sense that I I like to believe the novel insists on the holiness of that even as or especially as it is explicitly sexual. Um, there are explicit sex scenes, mm-hmm. which it was a lot of fun to write. And it was a lot of fun to figure out to have their coming together as lovers seem credible. Mm-hmm. And working that out was... <laughs> It was a royal fucking pain in the ass, but in the end, I I was happy with the way it worked out. The writer Amber Kaiser wrestles with a different jigsaw puzzle. How to write about teen and tween sex and sexuality while raising a tween and a teen. We dissect this Herculean task in Chapter 2, Mom's Sex Book. But before I bring in Amber, I need to tell you that today's sponsor is Talking Book, TalkingBook.pub, the indie audiobook folks out of glorious Asheville, North Carolina. They feature a range of dynamic emerging writers, so please browse their entire audiobook catalog and let us know what you choose. TalkingBook.pub. Why not give them a listen today? My name is Amber Kaiser, and my newest book is called The V Word. It's a young adult anthology of personal essays by women about first-time sex. It came out with Simon & Schuster in February. Amber and I met in May, surrounded by the Cascade Mountains down in the Methow Valley of Washington State at the recent Writing by Writers workshop. She was there to study with memoirist and novelist Lydia Yuknovich, and like all of us, focus on refining and improving her craft. I'm a parent. You're a parent. We've talked about this off mic. And I'm the parent of a daughter. You have two children? I have a 12-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son. Working on this project for the length of time that it took and and being a mom, what kind of conversations did it open up with your daughter or or son? Or did it scare you a bit in terms of what's coming down, down the road? Not scared. Definitely not. The The best thing about this collection was, frankly, the conversations that happened in my house. Um, the level of comfort that I now have talking about all of these things is great because even for me as a as a pretty full disclosure mom it, it, it was hard at first to have some of these conversations with my kids um, but the more you do it the easier it gets and we did we had great conversations because like I might come to the dinner table and be like oh my god I got the most awesome essay today you're not even going to believe it and then we could talk about it and you know doing all the research for the book, and there's a lot of research in it. Uh, there were, I checked out and every book on teens and sex that I could get, one's written for parents, one's written for teens. They were all over the house for years, you know? <laughs> and so, so there was that opportunity for a conversation too. My, my kid, there's a, a bit in the acknowledgements where I thank my children for being very accommodating of mom's sex book, as they call it. Uh, given that the essays are your writers' reflections of their first time, maybe they're old enough not to have the impact of the social media storm that we're in now, but all of this notions of the sexting and the availability of images online and what's kind of a general commentary about being a mom in this era or being a writer for, for YA in this time that we're living. I am grateful that this is a time when we can publish young adult novels that really explore the range of sexuality. So there's a queer character 
in the next book that comes out. Um, it's a it's a pretty sexual novel in general because that is part of what it means to be a girl's body in a girl's body. There's there's desire, there's danger, there is power, and how are we caged or uncaged? And so those are all themes that Lydia explores in her work, both in her fiction and her nonfiction, and her approach to writing on the body, as she calls it. Uh, is something that I felt like would really inform my craft moving forward, both as I do some revisions on this next novel and then for the next book coming out. What's been the biggest surprise or the biggest lesson learned from the the anthology? Well, one piece of advice I, I give to anybody who's venturing out in anthology territory is that diversity really does matter. And it is, so whether you're putting together an anthology or a literary festival or, you know, some way you're bringing writers together, they need to not all be white guys. And it requires a great deal of time and intentionality and investment early on to try and find diverse contributors. And that was a real priority for me in the V Word, and I think we did pretty well. I think... I could have done better if I had started earlier. Great, great. In thinking about writing as a career and knowing that you've gone to graduate school in Georgia, was that an MFA in writing or or an MA in creative writing? I have a PhD in population genetics. Oh my God. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And yet, and yet here you are talking, talking teen sex. (laughs) As one does. As one does. Okay. Since this interview took place just a day or two after meeting Amber, I hadn't read her essay or any of the other 16 pieces she curated for the V Word. As I was putting together this episode, I read several essays in the book, and I just had to have a follow-up chat, which we did via Skype. We got caught up on each other's summers, our writing, our projects. So, segue. Let's talk about sex instead of money, you know. I wanted to ask you about the the preface of of the book was so power was so powerful and I love the this notion of the V word being voice and not not virginity. I really believe that the most important thing we can do is share our own personal experiences with young people and let them draw their own conclusions based on their experiences. So I wrote the first draft of my essay very early in the process because I submitted um, I, I submitted a proposal for this book, mm-hmm. um, which included you know, a pretty detailed description of the book, what the goals were, what the market was. And then I included my essay, a draft of my essay, and a draft of um, Kiersey Burkhardt's essay. And uh, so those were written right up front before the book was sold. Those were the, what the book was sold based on. Mm-hmm. Um, I substantially revised my essay in the process and this was a really interesting and surprising thing that I want to share with you. Um, So Laurel Isaac is one of the other contributors and her essay also touches a little bit on the idea of shame associated with teen sex experiences. And she and I did a reading together recently and ended up having this great Q&A about sexuality and shame and And for both of us, one of the things that was really great about doing this project is as we worked on our essays, as we explored those experiences through our writing, 
it reclaimed those experiences for us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, my experience had really carried shame with it for my entire life. And it wasn't until working on this essay and rewriting it and rewriting it that I uncovered its real core loveliness and <laughs> wonderfulness and kind of stripped away the shame piece and and got that moment back. And Laurel had the same experience working on hers. And um, in fact, she has reached out to and is still connected with the partner from that piece. And um, and and they and, and that partner like wrote her a poem based on their experiences too. So both of us had this really unique, surprising um, reacquaintance with our own past, which was pretty neat and powerful. I loved the uh, the quote. I, I think it was from your essay, like mismatched puzzle pieces, they just wouldn't go together. And that sums up so well. A few of my, those early, those early uh, situations is a, is a young teen or whatever. The themes of this incredible kaleidoscope of emotion around that that time of life and also the first time. I don't know if there's any way to make it less fraught emotionally. So what what do you want this to accomplish? Like what, what would you want a reader of this who hasn't yet get from this? It's a good question. Well, so one thing I want to do is sort of unpack that idea of virginity. Like this one moment is this make it or break it critical life experience. That doesn't mean I believe it doesn't matter because I actually think it matters very deeply. And all the evidence you need for that is, is the great depth and detail and emotion that each of the writers described in their essays, right? right. It was not meaningless. Even for the ones who was, were like drunken hookup, it was not meaningless, right? There was a lot there. So I want to say Yes, sex and sexuality matters. But does the first time necessarily matter any more than the second or the third or the fourth? Not necessarily. On the one hand, I want to take a little bit of the pressure off young people, um, either to get it over with or to make it perfect or magical or whatever. Let's, let's take the pressure off of that experience a little bit. Um, but then let's honor that the whole range of experiences that we can have. You know, and then also I think broadening that idea of what, what is sex and, and how do we express our sexual selves? And that can be in fantasy. It can be in the way in the things we read or things we write or the ways we interact. Uh, you know, I just would like to, to make that a little less black and white for young people and a little bit more welcoming. <laughs> when you are writing fiction and you're thinking about character, how much of a thought do you give to the sexuality of your teen or her friends or his friends? If you're writing a, a teen character and you're not thinking about where they're at with, in terms of their sexuality or what they're thinking about, about sex, you're not really capturing the teen experience. Mm -hmm. In the next book that I'm writing, uh, you know, there's a lot of fluidity of sexuality in this book, um, which I think captures the experience of a lot of girls of this generation of being sort of flexible in their sexuality um, and, and exploratory in a lot of ways. So um, I, I do think it's a really huge and important piece of being a writer to ask yourself, well, what is the sexual history of these characters? What 
how do they feel about it? What's the baggage? Um, what turns them on? What turns them off? Um, you know, where do they feel safe? Where do they feel unsafe? What are those boundaries? You know, it's not easy to be a teen. No. But it also is a beautiful thing to be a teen because there's right. so much possibility. And the reason I write for this age group is, is that I love teens and I love the power and the enthusiasm that they bring to their experiences and the intensity and the honesty. And, you know, I, I think we get older and we make choices and doors close and we make compromises and we become more level-headed and responsible and all those things. And that's great. And that's, I guess, what we're all supposed to do. But there's something really exciting and creating, creative about being at a stage in your life where you can make so many new things happen for yourself. Before I share our final chapter, Shifting Identity, with poet Mark Doty, reminder that our first ever listener survey is live and needs your lovin'. Simply visit bit.ly slash storygeosurvey. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash storygeosurvey. And share what you like about the podcast and what we could do better. Thank you. So Mark Doty was an adult gay man living through the free love in 70s and the dark days of sickness in the 80s. We chatted outside at sunset last fall at a Writing by Writers annual workshop in Tamales Bay, California. Given all of your writing on the gay men's culture and, and the AIDS epidemic and the loss that, that was precipitated, I mean, after all the struggles that many wrote and fought for. And I'm just wondering if, you, if you've had any, any opportunity to sit back and reflect on where we stand now. I feel dizzied, as I think so many people do, by the possibility of marriage in the 50 states. This is incredible. I never thought this would happen in my lifetime. When I was a teenager, you know, I was going to a high school in Tucson with 2,000 people in it. I thought I was the only one. Gay lives were so erased, you had to, to go really sort of root through the library and look in the dim corners <laughs> to find some kind of evidence that people like myself, and mostly that evidence, you know, was... Um, psychiatric or, or uh, you know, involved um, very self-destructive characters in Tennessee Williams plays and, and so on, you know? Right. And I was grateful to find that because at least it was something. So this is remarkable. I do not think it means that it's easy for young people because nobody really still quite grows up as a gay person. You have to, at some point, come out. You, you have to discover that identity that is different than the assumed identity of heterosexuality. If we expect people to be okay. young heterosexuals, then it's startling when they're not. Uh, and they don't, nobody has to come out as a heterosexual. You know, never, right? It's just, it's like being a white person. You don't have to say, oh, I'm a white person. You know, it, it's not an identity that you claim. It's taken as a given. Um, so it's still hard for them. And yet, I was speaking at, at the Dodge Festival in, in uh, Newark, New Jersey um, last year, and there are, uh, you know, I'm in a, a panel for called sort of uh, GLBT questions or something like that, and, you know, there are 400 kids there. And, and you know, there, there are, you know, 14-year-olds standing up and saying, well, I came out when I was 12, and this has been my experience. It's utterly remarkable. I could not have imagined that. So um, one of the things that happens as a result of that is that the what has felt like an embattled identity for many of us, and particularly maybe in urban centers, feels less so. Yeah. It's not as much a point of, that, that needs to be claimed in the same way. It's more like a fact of life. And I really don't 
I don't go into new situations thinking about it as I once did. Like, oh, am I the only one here or do I have to assert myself? It's just, well, here it is, get used to it. And that's in part because a body of writing precedes me that has already come out for me, you know. I'm very grateful for that, and it's, it's another aspect of the strangeness of these years is to watch the primacy of that identity slip away. Whereas uh, now, I maybe feel more like a writer than I do like a gay person. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, that's really startling to me. Uh, where'd that come from? You know? The times that we live, but a uh, welcome, welcome change. <laughs> it's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, and confusing and mysterious, but you know, we'll see. wrap up today's episode, I ask Amber Kaiser. There's an election mm. that's happening this fall. <laughs> and I've been talking in, in episodes of the season two of Story Geometry to, to the notion of election year literature and what's come b- before us. And given this wacko time that we're living in, I'm fascinated to know or just to think about what literature will come from this era that will be published in two, three, four, five years that pull from some of these aspects of our current presidential campaign circus that we're living in. So do you have thoughts from a YA perspective, a general perspective from past writers, creative nonfiction, fiction, poetry, that kind of relate to politics that that you think of when you think of a certain election year? I just finished listening to the audiobook of Beauty Queens by Libba Bray, which is the most badass feminist satire. And she does the audiobook herself, and she's amazing. And I think it came out two years ago, maybe. But talk about psychic writing in terms of there's a there's a presidential election that is happening as, as in the backdrop of this book. And uh, it, it is scarily familiar to the things <laughs> we're seeing now. So props to Libba Bray for her psychic powers. Uh, but it does strike me that it would be fascinating to think about how, I, I mean, my, so my kids are 14 and 12, and so they're aware of politics now, and it would be fascinating to explore that a little bit more um, from a teen perspective, because that's where, that's where I come at my writing. Yep. Uh, but the other piece I'll just add is that this election year cycle has made me think a lot about privilege, and I've spent a lot of time listening to conversations about diversity, about white privilege. From both the right and the left. I'm, yeah, I mean more, yes, I mean more I am interested in what this election year reveals to us about white privilege in this country. And it's something that I'll be exploring in my next book. Booklist called Beauty Queens, quote, a hilarious romp into an examination of femininity and feminism, sex and sexuality, sure to be popular, end quote. I'll have a link to it in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of sexuality and lit with perspectives and insights from Fenton Johnson, Amber Kaiser, and Mark Doty. Reminder to sign up for Writing by Writers workshops and events at writingxwriters.org. And please complete our brief but powerful listener survey at bit.ly slash story geo survey. I'm your producer and host, Ben Hess, at Ben Hess on Twitter and Instagram. And the show is at Story Geometry on Twitter and Facebook. Have a glorious July. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.